I'd like to propose a question for you. Have you ever asked someone to go get the ketchup out of the refrigerator? You know it's in there. And um, they're opening it up, and they're looking. It's like, and they look, and they look. It's like, then you go, I can't find it. Has anybody been there? Are you the person? We have some, yeah, very good. And so, and then they shut, and you come back, and you open the door, and you pull the ketchup right out. Um, by the way, this is not known as man's or husband's disease or father's disease. It's actually in psychology. It's called a scotoma. Something be, is hidden in plain sight. doesn't always happen. But when you say, I can't, say, I can't find the ketchup, you gave your brain a command and uh, you don't see the ketchup. Incorrect assumptions can inhibit um, our ability to see what's right in front of us. And in our text today, James doesn't want us to miss it. He won't allow us to miss the ketchup, so to speak. Sometimes in life, we miss what we're looking right at, but James won't, once again, will not allow this to happen. Every place we look today, we'll find prayer. We will find prayer. When we open the doors of the refrigerator, all we'll find is prayer. If you need a Bible, as we look into God's Word, um, our hosts will have one for you. Um, it's yours to keep if you don't own one. And uh, if you do, it's on loan. Be page 1046 in your Bible. If you need an outline, there's one on the back of your program. If not, you can go to um, gracepolaris.org slash program. We'll be in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. You know, it's been said that last words are lasting words. You know, we can't ignore the first part of the book of James, but we must take special note of how he finishes his letter, his closing comments. James emphasizes one last action of faith that should always be taken. Would you please stand as we honor the word of the Lord as we read James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20? Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray for over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with our nature like ours, with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, is any among you, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from his heir of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This truly is the word of God. You may be seated. 
James gives us in our, in our first section, verses 13 to six, uh, 15, gives, gives us three scenarios of our life. We could be suffering, we could be cheerful, or we could be sick. And our reaction to life's circumstances. Reaction and action performed in response to a situation or event. In other words, what we do in response to what has happened or where we find ourselves. The first is suffering. Literally means to endure affliction, enduring evil treatment, trouble, your translation may have. This continues the thoughts of chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Laborers being mistreated, prophets having to endure things, and he gives Job as an example. Patience is encouraged during that section. But now he, Job, uh, James commands us to pray. It's a command. It's not something that's optional. It's interesting for James to make this command is baffling to me. Shouldn't this be the first place we go? To the one who is sovereign, to the creator of all things, the one who is able to help. And yet we try to figure out things on our own. We don't go directly to him first. James thinks we should, and he commands that. And this should remind us of the way James started his book. He said, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you endure various trials. It's interesting, suffering covers all these kinds of trials, these various trials. And if we were honest, we're just not very interested in suffering. If from the menu of life we had a choice, we wouldn't be choosing suffering. In the midst of suffering, we may not know what to do. We become angry at God. And with others, if the suffering lasts long enough, we may become discouraged or lose heart. James says, no, you must go to the one who is able. You must pray. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Been talking, we'll be continuing to talk a lot about prayer. And uh, we've already talked a little bit about prayer. What is prayer? Is prayer a monologue where I talk, God listens? No. Is it me using God as a cosmic vending machine to get what I want? No, James already covered that, didn't he? He said, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So James has covered that, so that's not what prayer is. It's a conversation which involves listening to God. Has God spoken to you lately? Actually, everybody should be saying yes, because where can we find out what God has to say? His word. Have we listened to God? It involves praising God. It involves thanking God. It also involves confessing our sins to God, sharing our heart, our hurts, our concerns. And yes, it's also asking God for different things as well. One of my favorite authors, Gene Edwards, puts it this way. Every believer must come to grips with a God who did not do things quite the way it was expected. You're going to get to know your Lord by faith or you will not know him at all. Faith in him, trust in him, not in his ways. Today you're resentful of those who so callously hurt you, but no, not really. The truth is, 
you're angry with God because ultimately you're dealing with the sovereign hand of your Lord. Behind all events, behind all things, there is always his sovereign hand. Edward's point is suffering isn't random. These things are allowed by God to grow us into the image of Christ. James has already said that at the beginning of his book. If you find your identity in Christ, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you know you have great value because he sent his son to die for you. And you also know he has a purpose for you. Obviously, it's to glorify God, but it's also to conform us into the image of Christ. And how does he do that? A lot of times, difficulty, suffering. And that's a hard thing. God is faithful to his word, and he will do these things. James says, go to the one who is sovereign, who cares, who has a purpose for your life. Talk with him, listen to him, pour out your heart to him. And let's be honest. We like being the captain of our own ship. To yield the helm, to have somebody else in control, we're not real interested in that. Yet... The truth is, someone else actually is in control. He loves us. He has the best in mind for us. He sent his son for us to die on the cross for our sins, that we might have life. He knows what he's doing. Next, he talks about being cheerful. What are we to do when we're cheerful? said, sing praises. So James takes us to both ends of the spectrum, suffering on the one side and being cheerful on the other. When things are going well, we have a tendency to forget God, don't we? You know, it can be a very dangerous place to be if we don't recognize the one who has given us every good and perfect gift. What James said earlier in the book, for these things truly are from the Lord. I like what Hughes had said. He says, his commands are congenial attack on the universal human tendency during trouble to get angry or indulge in self-pity or complaint. Or on the other hand, when one is untroubled and happy, to forget God. James commands that Christians pray throughout the whole spectrum of emotions, whether low or high, at the bottom or at the top, in the pits or on the pinnacle, either prayer or praise is appropriate. He just covered all of life, didn't he? And then lastly, concerning those who are sick in this section, says verses 14 and 15, is any of you among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church that they may pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. The term sick literally means without strength, without power, powerless. This term is normally thought of as uh, some kind of physical ailment, and it definitely is that. But it also leaves the door open for emotional as well as spiritual weakness. I like what uh, Colin Brown had to say. He said, Weakness is the opposite of strength and embraces the full range of physical, emotional, social, economic, and even spiritual incapacity. All these notions are expressed, in, in essence, in this term. 
In other words, this is not your common cold or difficulty, but it leaves the person without strength. It would be assumed that, according to James, that the person is praying, and somehow this suffering has moved into something deeper. They're experiencing something way beyond that point. I like what Pastor Dick DeArmey had said in his booklet, Call for the Elders. He stated that at times he would be unable to pray for himself as he dealt with his physical challenges. He would then call for the elders because he was without strength. So calling for the elders is the command. The command, who is an elder of the church? Uh, those charged with spiritual oversight of the community of believers. They're the ones who watch out for your souls as those who must give an account according to Hebrews 13, 17. The account must be given to the Lord Jesus Christ. These are men who have trusted Jesus Christ, who have displayed consistent biblical character and have life experience. Men whose lives and theology have been examined. These are not perfect men. These men don't glow in the dark. But uh, these men have a pattern of walking close to the Lord and being a disciple of Christ. At Grace, we have 28 elders in the College of Elders. And they're to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And I like DeArmey's note on this, and I agree with this. He says, we view the oil as symbolic of the consecration or setting apart of the individual. No power is inherent in the oil. Nothing related to healing is indicated in the oil itself. The oil merely focuses attention of all on the individual who is being set apart for special prayer to the end that God's will be done. I need to take a, a, a moment here to say that it uh, must be noted that there are different interpretations of this text of which I would like to briefly comment. I'm going to quote two different individuals which I agree with, and I believe the text uh, clearly shows this. First, by Hughes, uh, the verse provides no basis for the Roman Catholic Church's sacrament of extreme unction, wherein, dying, wherein the dying is anointed with oil with the purpose of removing any remnant of sin and strengthening the soul for dying. A simple reading of the text makes it clear that the anointing of oil is to promote healing, not ease dying. And the second quote, since Vatican II, the rite has been called the anointing of the sick. Clearly, this developed sacrament has little basis in James's text. He recommends anointing for in any illness associated with healing rather than the preparation for death. And in the name of the Lord, this anointing is to take place. It means his authority. It also means it's the Lord, not the oil, who heals. And this is the one who the elders are praying to, the one who is able to restore Verse 15 tells us the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Hughes says the prayer of faith comes from a faith in almighty God who sovereignly carries out his will. <clears throat> Nothing is beyond him. He can heal anyone anytime he wills. And he does heal today. I've seen that. He does as he wills in every circumstance, working all things to his glory. This prayer is not to arise from our own desires, but from the one 
whose will be done and is able to heal. Restore the sick, it means to rescue, to deliver, to set it free. It should not be thought of, in this case, as terms of salvation from sin, but rather our deliverance from whoever has been made powerless. It's interesting with respect to raising up. I was talking with Pastor Tim Wagner this week about this text. He's been part of numerous uh, anointings. And he made the comment that something happens to the person during the anointing, the prayer, that God intervenes, that their faith is being strengthened. And the raising up is, it has an effect on the person. He sees that every single time. And this is where, quite honestly, I wish James changed what he had to say. He says the prayer offered in faith will, not might or may may restore, but will restore the sick. It's a pretty certain will. And there are examples where people aren't healed. I personally have experienced that with my first wife. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? I'd like to give some examples. One such example comes from Paul himself in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. I'm going to read that. It says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, There has been given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that that it might lead me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content. I'm questioning whether I'd be content with these things. With weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul didn't get a healing here. Was he a man of faith? Yes, he was. Did he lack faith? No, not at all. You know, some would say if you just had enough faith, you'd be healed. And since you didn't have enough faith, you weren't healed. It's all your fault. This thought can be very destructive to the person's walk in Christ and to their faith. Somehow, this train of thought leads to you have faith in your faith, not your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in control. This text tells us that the person who is sick is to call for the elders. It's the elders who are praying in this case for the sick. I love Pastor Zach's statement as we're discussing this, that the role of believers, and this will fit with um, as well with what we'll be talking about here in a moment, um, that the community should say to those brothers and sisters who are struggling, I'm going to have faith for you. I know you're struggling. That's the coming alongside of each other. My wife, Linda, and I were discussing this passage. She asked, what if God's version of being restored or healed isn't what our version of being restored or healed is? That was a great question. Sometimes God does not meet our expectations of what we want or our our definition of healing. We saw Paul's prayer not answered, and yet 
he saw something else in the midst of it. Can God heal directly and instantly? The answer is absolutely yes. Can God use other means such as medical experts? Absolutely, he can use that. We must leave things in the hands of the Lord. And then he ends in verse 15, says, if he has committed sins, then they will be forgiven him. You know, in, in our culture, when somebody's sick or without strength, as this term means, Sin normally doesn't come to mind as a possibility as the cause for that sickness. James lets us know that the question is a worthy question. James informs us that sin should be considered. It's interesting that, um, that in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 30, uh, the context there is the communion service that uh, some men um, drank of the bread and the cup unworthily. And he tells us, Paul tells us, we need to examine ourselves. And then he ends up in verse 30, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number fall asleep. So some have died. So because of their sin, weakness, sickness, and even death occurred. And yet John 9, 1 to 4 tells us, as he, that being Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it as neither that the man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed. So bottom line is that sin may or may not be the cause of sickness, but in our culture, we normally don't consider that. In this case, James tells us, We need to consider this. We've covered much in this passage, and I think it's fitting to pause for a moment and ask you to turn your attentions to the screens for a powerful testimony concerning what we have just been looking at from Robert and Jean Toda. Would you turn your attention to the screens? It's been two years this month, uh, 2019. Just went for a physical examination. I was called back in the next day. And he says, Robert, we just saw something, a shadow or something in your lung. We did a PET scan and everything showed that it looked like cancer in my lung. It was an early stage on my left side of my lung, about a third of it. I asked the dear Lord to give me the right attitude. And I said, Lord, you got to take this. And from that point on, I really got comforted. The operation was June 12th, 2019. It was a very serious situation. My lung was leaking, so I had five drainage tubes put on the left side, and I had a drainage tube the last time was put right here in the the front of my chest. And uh, it's only the grace of God and all the prayers. Our Grace family is amazing. And there was never a time that I didn't feel God's presence. When people at Grace say they'll pray for you, they do they take it to heart and they pray for you. God kind of leads you through each day when you feel overwhelmed. And he kept kind of reining me back in and pulling me back. And I was spending a lot of time in James, um, a lot of time in scripture. It was definitely nothing that I was doing on my own. There was never a time that I felt like I didn't trust God with it. Not once. 
And then in May was my uh, yearly CAT scan. And uh, that trial was to make sure I was clean. Uh, it was not clean and it was located in my lymph node right here by my trachea. And uh, awesome doctors put it all together and they thought it was best that I would go through chemo and radiation. Went through chemo and rad radiation in uh, August, September and got done almost the last day of September. Pastor Mike came in the back hallway. We were talking and, and you said, hey, Robert, how about James 5, if we would do an anointing? Think about it, pray about it. I read chapter 5 again and I said, wow, look at that command. That's grace. That's how things work. I called uh, Pastor Dan Green. I said, you know, uh, how big, whatever, how, how many um, people? And he goes, Rob, we can do whatever you want. What I wanted was the men that have helped mentor, help me in my walk with Jesus. We brought them together. And to that day, I share with you, that chemo and radiation was nothing. The blessing that God bestowed upon Robert, it was amazing. Those doctors and nurses told me I was gonna get burnt across here. My esophagus would lock up and I need medication to swallow. And the little hair that I have left was gonna be gone. All three of those did not happen. That's a praise, that's God working. Pastor Jim, um, after all of you prayed, after the anointing, he squeezed my shoulder and he said, never once has he not seen God work after that happens. And after that, felt tremendous peace, joy, and got through it. What an encouragement it was to come back here and uh, just to walk in and see people's faces, the hugs, hello, we've been praying for you. It's gonna be like heaven and that's what it was. If you're a believer and you're not well, take the time of prayer studying the word, and then let God move you. What a powerful testimony. Robert and Jean prayed. That's what James said. The family of, of, at Grace prayed for them as well. We'll be looking at that in a moment. The elders were called and prayed. This is a picture of dear, a dear brother and sister living out the truths that James taught and commanded. Lord blessed Robert in the midst of the trial. That's a praise. God was working, and Pastor Jim is right. He's never seen the Lord not work. Let me ask you a question. How many of you knew that calling for the elders when sick was available at Grace? Those of you who didn't now know that um, if you're without strength, that is a possibility for you, and you see a tremendous testimony. Let's continue on. Um, Verses 16 to 18 tells us, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. And this covers our interaction with one another. Interaction is direct involvement with someone. 
reciprocal action and influence. What we've learned so far, if you're suffering, what should we do? Pray, that's right. If you're cheerful, we should prayfully worship through song. We should praise God. If you're sick, uh, without strength, call for the others. What will they do? They'll pray. And now we're, we are to confess our sins and pray for one another. Um, you know, James just got very, very personal here, didn't he? Question is, do you know somebody well enough to pray for them? More than just, hey, bless them, but the details of their life and how they're doing. You know, this is a challenge in our culture today. We, we talk about being transparent and authentic, but we hold everything very close to the vest, so to speak. Do we ask each other how we're doing? We do, don't we? But that's a very easy answer, isn't it? What's the, what's the correct answer? Oh, I'm fine. Don't we do that? What's the real question we should ask? How are you doing really? That's a hard question. It's a question that asks, what's actually going on in your life? That's what we need to be asking each other. And then he says to confess your sins to one another. Do we do that? What is confession? We are to acknowledge op uh, openly those lapses of, of, and deviations from the truth. In other words, our sin. Why don't we practice that? Can we have a volunteer for somebody to come up and confess all their sins in front of the congregation? That's a no, no. But we will practice that. So at least you take one step forward in the confession of sins. So I'd like to have everybody stand, if you would. And um, this will be, be a congregational response. Um, we're not in high church, but so if anybody grown up in high church, you'll know what we're doing here. So I want you to repeat after me, Okay. I messed up. There wasn't a whole lot of decibel level on that. because <laughs> Here's the problem with that is because we're, we're blind to our blindness. And it's, e it's easy for us to see other people's sin, right? But not real easy for us to see ourselves. So we'll change the, the uh, pronoun there. Um, turn to the other person and say, you're messed up. <laughs> I need to increase my counseling. Now, nobody said that. Okay, turn to the other person and say, you're messed up. Go ahead. Nobody wants to do that? Really? Okay, how about this one? We'll change the pronoun again. We're all messed up. How's that? We're all messed up. See, you, can, you may be seated. You've just proclaimed an amazing theological truth that's found in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it's out there. You've just confessed the truth that's already there in Scripture. So you've taken a first step in confessing sin. Do you have somebody that, that knows you well enough or you know well enough where you can actually say, hey, I'm not doing well. I need some help. And here's what I've done. It's interesting. I came to know Christ in, in uh, second year of college and was attending a church. And a mature believer was there and, and uh, before the service. And he goes, how are you doing, Gary? I didn't realize I was not supposed to answer that question honestly. I answered it honestly, and I shared how I was doing. You know what he did? He goes, you'll be okay, and walks away. It's like, what would we do when somebody would confess sin to us? Would we just walk away, or would we put our arm around them and say, I'll pray for you, brother. I'll walk with you in the midst of this. 
That's what James says we should do. That's why we talk about community. That's why we talk about grace groups and community groups, Sunday morning groups, Bible studies, because we need to be in each other's lives so that we get to know each other, so that we can say, I'm not doing well. Have you ever struggled with anything? I already know the answer with that. Do we need help? Yes, we do. And so that's why we need to be in community and grace groups and, uh, once again, Sunday morning groups and Bible studies together. Are you willing to confess your sin when you've wronged someone? That's a powerful thing to do. I was wrong. You're specific and say, I was wrong. Please forgive me. That's a powerful thing to do as a father with your kids. They already know you're not perfect. Will you approach your kids and say, I'm wrong? Please forgive me. That's a powerful example and truth that James is speaking of. You know, it's interesting that there is an amazing potential for health in the body of Christ if we're willing to humble ourselves and confess our sins. We'll be watching the Olympics here in what? Beginning of August, something like that. There'll be sprinters and runners. How much stuff do they have on? Like almost nothing, right? Shoes or ounces, what they have on. It fits perfectly with Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. It says, lay aside every encumbrance or weight and sin that so easily entangles you so that you can run the race well. By the way, when you're weighed down with unconfessed sin, you don't run well. We know that from the author of Hebrews, and we know that from James. Saying, I'm wrong, do you forgive me, is a hard thing to do. When we confess, we're vulnerable, aren't we? We have to be humble. We have to be teachable. And yet a weight is lifted. Please note that um, confession to the Lord is also needed for sin. He alone can forgive sin. For we do have an advocate with the Father, a mediator, Jesus Christ the righteous. He tells us we're to pray for each other. And that has an impact as well, has an effect. He tells us that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Who's the righteous man? He gives an example here in a moment of Elijah. But what about our day and age? I like this quote. It says, righteous man is simply the believer. It's you and I. The person who is righteous by virtue of receiving forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Christ's righteousness imputed to us, placed into our account and is therefore part of the people of God. Prayer, James wants to make clear, is a powerful weapon in the hands even of the humblest believer. It does not require a super saint to yield it effectively. And also Hughes says, if you're confessed up and walking with Christ, your prayers are dynamite, especially as you offer for your needy brothers and sisters in Christ. Before we move on, we need to be part of each other's lives. This is why I just talked about community, grace groups, and those things. Are you involved in each other's lives in those situations? The body of Christ is not plan B. I believe that God would do way beyond what we could ask or think if we're a congregation, if we're people who confess our sin and pray for one another. And then James gives the example of the righteous man, verses 17 and 18. Elijah, 
was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced fruit. As you look at the scriptures, you find out that Elijah was agreeing with God, what God had already said. In uh, Sam Alberry writes, God had said early in the life of Israel that if they turned away from him, he would send certain punishments, one of which was drought. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy 28, 22, and 23 here. The Lord will strike you with a scorching heat and drought. The sky over your head will be bronze and the ground beneath you iron. Elijah just didn't come up with something. Well, the people aren't, uh, the people aren't following the Lord, so we'll just pick a random punishment. No, he was directly in line when he prayed with the will of God. And then our final section, verses 19 and 20, says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Our action for the one who strays from the truth. Straying or wandering from the truth, your version may have wandering. It's a word we get apostatized. It means to reject the revealed will of God and then, con and then act contrary to it. Now, it could, could be from one's own free will or they could be deceived, but they're moving in a direction, a path. They're straying or wandering from the truth. Thus, to be turned back, they're turned back on the path of truth. So how does one do that? Obviously, uh, it would involve the Word of God. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about God's Word being profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then, obviously, prayer would be used as well. It would be a major part of turning somebody back because the Lord needs to work in their heart. Only the Lord can truly change somebody's heart. And this is someone in the community of believers. This requires what is known as church discipline from Matthew 18. I personally prefer to call it church restoration because that's the goal, to come to a brother, to turn him from the path of, of uh, sin to the path of truth. You know, when my three children were growing up, I would know them well enough just to see them and say, are you doing okay? I knew something was up. Let me ask you this. Are you close enough to someone where they can look at you and sense things just aren't quite right? And to know if someone's straying from the truth. Are you close enough? That's why we're talking about community again. Once again, whether it's a grace group, a Sunday morning group, a Bible study. And the question is, do we allow somebody to get close enough? We should. We need each other. And then finally, he says in verse 20, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Two legitimate interpretations of this. I'll give you both of them. Some would say that it's warning true believers. He talks about my brethren because it's addressing, obviously, my brethren. 
If we take it to mean this, it's a warning about straying. The death would be physical in this case. We already saw that in 1 Corinthians 11. You can also see that in 1 John 5, who have died because of sin. And the, and to the cover of a multitude of sins would mean since they turn from the path of straying to the per path of truth, thus preventing a multitude of sins because they've moved from that path of sin to the path of truth. That's one interpretation that's very possible. The other is some would say that these are only professing believers. They're not true believers. So to save your soul from death would be spiritual death. Eternal separation from God, thus turning them back, would indicate salvation. To cover a multitude of sins would be God's forgiveness. That come, the God's forgiveness that only comes through him, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Regardless of these interpretations, you are moving this individual who is straying from the path of truth back on the path of truth. And we need to be involved in each other's lives to see that to come alongside them, not in a judgmental way, a critical way, but a way that comes alongside the individual to help them move back in God's direction. James only had prayer in the refrigerator. We just saw that. When you open the doors, there's no way to miss it. It's always prayer. And there's no confusion what action we should take. And the final point is faith always takes action through prayer. As Danny and the musicians come forward, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this truth from James's book. Thank you that you invite us to pray because you are able. You know what's happening. You care about what's happening in our lives. You're willing to help and you're able. And I just praise your name for that, Father. Lord, help us to be in each other's lives, not to be critical, but to come alongside to show your love to one another by pointing each other in your direction, by praying for each other. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.